sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All these uh, books surrounding you here are used to research the show, and the individual to my right, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be uh, directly quoted from uh, these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Well, we're uh, happy to be back as we took something of a break in September, skipping a uh, regular episode to offer instead one of our uh, special marvelous and rare shows, something shorter than usual. And without me. We can include you in future. For those who may not be listening in sequence, our last show was a sample of the bonus episode we offer on Patreon. I think I'd like to. What? Do a marvelous and rare show. I'm the one who reads from the old books usually. That's all you're doing on those. And it's kind of my niche. Well, okay, that would be nice. Uh, in any case, we know that listeners have a special place in their hearts for the month of Halloween, so we're now back in full force. Tonight's show is a particularly macabre one, and then we're doing something special for the second episode closer to Halloween. Yes, and regarding the issues uh, some of you expressed concern about two shows back, the uh, matter of uh, certain parties or podcasts, inserting their feelers into what we do here, well, that's all been resolved. Or at least I've taken measures which I think will be effective. The house is now under 24-hour guard. I know it makes you feel safer, but guns make me nervous. And machine guns. It's all pretty extreme if you ask me. They're licensed. They know what they're doing. I can't imagine what the neighbors must think. Two huge men in black leather jackets with machine guns at the gate. Only one is huge. And they're muttering and Russian. It's also sinister. Not Russian. They're Ukrainian. Don't call them that. It's not exactly trivial. They were in a militia. Or maybe not an organized militia, but they have some sort of uh, training. That's my understanding anyway. It's a little hard to understand them sometimes. So you're learning Ukrainian. That's what I'm hearing. Those spooky voices you're talking to at night. Your language takes. I was delighted to hear they're Ukrainian. They hate the Serbs for being so pro-Russian, you know. So if Mr. Petrovich shows his face, well, they won't be playing games. It's not just about Aaron Mankey. I'm getting twice the service for a single price. I think you're in over your head. If that's what you want to call it. We should get started on the episode. I've said my piece. I just don't think this will go well. Even the bees seem agitated. Always the bees. Yes, always the bees. Okay. I've said my piece. Episode 55, The Gibbet, Hanged in Chains. We 
I'm your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started this show as a way to further explore this uh, area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors. We have a special offer for those who join this month at the $4 and up level. I'll be sharing a video of my uh, presentation at the uh, Rural Gothic Conference, the one I did on uh, foreign language folk horror films. It's nearly an hour long with clips from more than 50 films, and um, I'll have more on that and other Patreon rewards available at the end of our episode. It's that time of year when spooky animatronic figures have begun chattering in stores everywhere. Of course, you like the life-size props, but perhaps you can only afford something smaller, so you wander over an aisle and pick up one of these. It's a skeleton behind bars in a small sort of birdcage thing. Is it supposed to be a forgotten prisoner? Maybe. But why is it designed to hang when that's not how prisoners are kept in dungeons? Is it perhaps to ensure that your modest purchase can be enjoyed up at eye level? It could help with that. But then perhaps you realize that you've seen something like this before. Life-sized versions in a museum of crime and punishment, or pictures in some book on pirates, or a scene in a historical drama or a horror film. Well, it's called a gibbet, which is an old word once used for gallows, but which came to mean something very special. It's what awaited some after being hanged on the gallows, and as such is the promised follow-up to our gallows lore episode. Gibbet was a way of displaying the corpse of the condemned after execution as an extra measure of post-mortem shaming. Our toy version evolved out of some misunderstandings about the gibbet. They were known for holding skeletons as the body decayed, but there was no gibbeting of live victims that might chatter like our toy. And the shape of the actual gibbet was more form-fitting, not a narrow birdcage configuration, but an arrangement of uh, Iron braces and straps conform to the limbs to keep the uh, decomposing body intact. Our uh, toy maker might be forgiven for the design mistake, however, as uh, this uh, more easily fabricated birdcage shape it does often stand in for a proper gibbet in displays. But now that you know, accept no invitations. Though there are rare cases of similar contrivances in other countries, what we're talking about was uniquely prominent in England and its colonies, largely thanks to the passing of the Murder Act of 1751, which added a sort of second-tier punishment beyond hanging for those guilty of murder. There had been a sort of punitive inflation in the 18th century, with capital punishment meted out for things like simple thefts. And so it was decreed, For better preventing the horrid crime of murder, some form of further terror and peculiar mark of infamy be added to the punishment. 
Actually, two particular terrors were indicated. The criminal's body could be made available for dissection to surgeons to deepen their understanding of anatomy, or it might be gibbeted so that would-be criminals might better understand the costs of uh, their deeds. To further that connection, the corpse would be hung up in its gibbet irons as near as possible to the site where the murder in question was committed. The uh, legal term for this was somewhat confusingly to be hanged in chains. Even though actual chains weren't commonly part of the arrangement. Gibbeting was not created by the Murder Act, and the dissection of executed criminals was not new, but the law formalized these as fitting additions to a sentence. It allowed for more orderly enforcement when it came to the fate of the bodies. Before that, the post-execution scene could be one of chaos, as writer and printer Samuel Richardson described in 1741. As soon as the poor creatures were half-dead, I was much surprised, before such a number of peace officers, to see the populace fall to hauling and pulling the carcasses with so much earnestness as to occasion several warm encounters and broken heads. These were the friends of the persons executed, and some persons sent by private surgeons to obtain bodies for dissection. The contests between these were fierce and bloody and frightful to look at. Now, this whole topic of cadavers for dissection, grave robbing, and body snatching is surely a show unto itself, but I do want to address a few grisly particulars that would naturally flow out of our previous episode's discussion of the uh, hangman's right to uh, grant access to the corpse or parts of a corpse, as with the... uh, hand of glory. With the Murder Act, this right passed from the hangman to the anatomists, who would be more expert at extracting certain elements from the human body. We don't hear as much about this in England, and even though it's a bit of a tangent, I'd like to share some details about the continental market for these uh, body parts. As early as the 14th century, uh, and this is According to some outraged sermons by Bernardino of Siena, Italians would seek out the teeth of hanged men as cures for toothache. In uh, 17th century France, a wig made from the hair of the uh, executed, dipped in the blood of a certain bird, uh, could render one invisible. In Germany and Holland, belts of tanned human skin helped against labor pains, and we've mentioned the use of uh, hands and hand bones in that region as a uh, a magical aid to thieves. But the commodity most in demand, and one which anatomists were better suited to extract, was human fat. I hope no one's eating for this next bit. The famed Madrid apothecary of Jose Ortega was selling it for 160 Spanish reales in 1761. In Germany, Augsburg's executioner, Johann Georg Trenkler, unsuccessfully petitioned the city to return to him his right to his victim's bodies, explaining, The whole town knows that by mixing a salve with human fat, I have cured several patients of their nerve gout. And in Turin, the Justice Committee exhibited a certain sympathy to the executioner's loss, recommending 24 pieces of silver in 1799 as compensation for the loss of his right to sell the fat of the executed. France, France is the worst. 
18th century books of herbal remedies and household tips, like the L'Agriculture Maison Rustique, recommended human fat mixed with waterwort against gout and as an aid to drawing out musket shot. Charlon, an 18th century cholera researcher, wrote of a Parisian restaurant he recalled from his student days that obtained human fat from his school's anatomists. And in the early 19th century, that school was still experiencing scandals with the discovery of a 400-kilogram trove of illicit human fat skimmed off by anatomists. The commodity was particularly valued by certain artisans, such as enamelists, who believed that human fat produced a steadier, more robust flame for their work. It also went to apothecaries for the compounding of various salves and was even said to be used as axle grease. While we don't hear much about fat extraction from the bodies of English murderers, we do know that it was much more common for them to end up in the hands of anatomists than in the gibbet. The gibbet represented a sizable investment in resources and was reserved for those guilty of particularly heinous or famous murders. Highwaymen, for instance, whose uh, semi-heroic status among the people might need to be uh, taken down a notch. The process began with a fitting, usually conducted before the hanging, which was uh, surely a uh, memorable experience for the condemned. In other cases, gibbets might be made before the uh, identity or dimensions of the condemned were known, as evidenced by marks, sort of like holes in a belt, that you can see in uh, existing gibbets in museums. So this suggests that some were prefabbed and hammered down to size. Burn marks, which have been discovered in some skulls, also suggest that uh, heated iron might have sometimes been adjusted directly on the body, uh, hopefully after death. The post required for suspension would ideally not only be placed near the site of the crime, or sometimes the trial, but there was also a need to see it erected in uh, wide open fields or along an empty stretch of country road, as uh, gibbetings tended to draw large crowds. Because of this, gibbets often served in these uh, featureless regions as landmarks for travelers, lending their names to entire regions. England is therefore home to countless gibbet sites, gibbet hill, gibbet moor, gibbet marsh, rock, lane, woods, and so on. Another aspect of the preparation often mentioned is covering the dead body with tar, though there is some debate about this as it's not supported by primary sources. So such as uh, financial records uh, kept by the sheriff, which would tend to be very meticulous about the expense of each bit of iron and other costs involved in the process. The presumed goal of tarring is a sort of weatherproofing or countering the process of decay, but this runs a bit contrary uh, to the uh, psychological goal of the whole thing, namely to use the uh, horror of decay and degradation of the body as uh, something punitive or cautionary. Not to mention the effect the tar would have on the uh, recognizability of the criminal. Well, we can't really know, but it's all fun to think about. Nonetheless, there are many accounts, though possibly secondhand, that do mention tar, such as this from 1720 by Swiss travel writer César de Saussure. Their bodies are then covered with tallow and fat substances. Over this is placed a tarred shirt fastened down with iron bands, and
and the bodies are hung with chains to the gibbet, which is erected on the spot. Another foreigner fascinated by the English gibbet was Victor Hugo, whose 1869 novel, The Man Who Laughs, details an encounter with the gibbet by the story's protagonist as a child. I believe I may have mentioned this story before, that of a circus performer mutilated as an infant to give him a uh, grotesquely perpetual grin. And there's an excellent silent film adaptation and plenty of enjoyable gothic elements in the novel. But anyway, here's the part of that delicious description Hugo provides. We don't have time for Mrs. Carswell to quote it all, but I will share the entire gruesome chapter on Patreon. The spectre was tarred. Here and there it shone. The child distinguished the face. It was coated over with pitch, and this mask, which appeared viscous and sticky, buried its aspect with the night shadows. The child saw the mouth, which was a hole, the nose, which was a hole, the eyes, which were holes. The body was wrapped and apparently corded up in coarse canvas, soaked in naphtha. The canvas was moldy and torn, a knee protruded through it. A rent disclosed the ribs, partly corpse, partly skeleton. The face was the color of earth. Slugs wandering over it had traced across it vague ribbons of silver. The canvas glued to the bones showed in reliefs like the robe of a statue. The skull, cracked and fractured, gaped like a rotten fruit. The teeth were still human, for they retained a laugh. The remains of a cry seemed to murmur in the open mouth. There were a few hairs of beard on the cheek. The inclined head had an air of attention. Some repairs had recently been done. The face had been tarred afresh, as well as the ribs and the knee, which protruded from the canvas. The feet hung out below. He looked above him at the face which looked down on him. It appeared to regard him the more steadfastly because it had no eyes. It was a comprehensive glance, having an indescribable fixedness in which there were both light and darkness, and which emanated from the skull and teeth as well as the empty arches of the brow. The whole head of a dead man seems to have vision, and this is awful. No eyeball, yet we feel we are looked at. A horror of worms. So, yes, here too we have the tar and even a sack. Hugo actually goes into further detail, which justifies the inclusion of the tar, uh, including the story of John the Painter, whom he calls Jack the Painter, which was one of his aliases. His real name was James Aitken, and he was a Scottish saboteur working for the Americans during our revolution. After being hanged in 1777 for an act of arson at the uh, Portsmouth Royal Dockyards, he was gibbeted nearby. And, according to Hugo and other widely circulated reports, coated in tar for the occasion. And one more bit from the novel, which illustrates something else uh, crucial to the gibbet. 
From descriptions and surviving specimens of gibbet hardware, we know that bodies were always hung by a chain or a hardware that allowed movement in the wind. There seems to have been no reason for this other than pure theatricality and the desire to uh, increase the ominous power of the landmark. Hugo captures it perfectly. The corpse at the end of the chain, pushed by the invisible gust, took an oblique attitude, rose to the left, then fell back, reascended to the right, and fell and rose with slow and mournful procession. A weird game of seesaw. The chain at every oscillation made a grinding sound with hideous regularity. It appeared to take breath and then to resume. The corpse emphasized its dismal oscillations. It no longer swung, it tossed the chain, which had been grinding, now shrieked. And, of course, gibbets make appearances in English literature. One is mentioned in Wordsworth's 1799 autobiographical poem, The Prelude, another in Dickens' Great Expectations. But the one I found particularly interesting comes from a now-forgotten series of children's books by Mary Martha Sherwood. It's in Volume 1 of The History of the Fairchild Family, a series of three books published between 1818 and 1847. The uh, Fairchild stories were enormously popular in Victorian times, praised for their realistic portrayal of family life, but were later eclipsed by more uh, fantasy-oriented works like those of Lewis Carroll. This uh, realism, however, was cause for them falling into oblivion, as the family portrayed is far too pious for modern tastes. In the passage in question, Mr. Fairchild, the father of two girls and a boy ages seven to nine, hoping to uh, deepen the children's understanding of man's fallen nature and where it leads, contrives an edifying experience, an excursion to see a mysterious surprise in an area known rather fittingly as the Blackwood. As he and the children reach a clearing near a tumble-down cottage, they see it. Just between that and the wood stood a gibbet, on which the body of a man hung in chains. It had not yet fallen to pieces, although it had hung there for some years. The body had on a blue coat, a silk handkerchief around the neck, with shoes and stockings, and every other part of the dress still entire. But the face of the corpse was so shocking that the children could not look upon it. Mr. Fairchild then relates the path that led this miscreant to his fate, the murder of his brother very near the site, a deed that grew from a hateful grudge which began in quarrels between the siblings as children. While Mr. Fairchild was speaking, the wind blew strong and shook the body upon the gibbet, rattling the chains by which it hung. The frightened children beg to leave this dreadful spot, which they are allowed to do after reflecting on the morning's quarrels and kneeling to pray for renewed and loving hearts. Old Grindrod was sent on a gibbet high in a place where the black deed was done. This ballad, Old Grinrod's Ghost, appears in the 1872 collection, 
ballads, romantic, fantastical, and humorous, by the historical novelist William Ainsworth, who wrote The Lancashire Witches. This chains round his neck and chains around his ankles were hung. It's a traditional tale of a ghost-haunted gibbet in Lancashire, a, a tale similar to one told in Derby. John Grinrod was hung up after his execution in 1759 for poisoning his wife and children with arsenic-tainted treacle. The ballad tells of a braggart in a tavern who mocks the idea of a ghost-haunted gibbet, and the innkeeper challenges the traveler to go out and tell the ghost that himself, placing a bet that his nerve will fail. The traveler starts off for the moor, eventually stopping at the feet of the gibbet. He cheekily asks the skeleton how he fares, only to hear an eerie voice reply, I'm cold and I'm dreary, I'm wet and I'm weary, but soon I'll be near you. Terrified traveler takes to his heels, hearing the gibbet rattling as he goes. As he reaches the safety of the inn, he realizes... His wager he lost, and a trifle it cost. But that which annoyed him most was to find out too late that certain as fate. The landlord had acted the ghost. This uh, ballad was sung by the band Pendlecheek from Northwest England, and I'll link it on the website as I always do with these things. Those hanged in chains were intended to hang in perpetuity. Depending on conditions, their flesh might disintegrate within months, the clothing blow away in tatters and bones fall into disarray as connective tissues broke, eventually slipping out of the gibbet's grasp that no longer fit snugly. The iron cage might linger for decades as it fell to pieces, and the post even longer. Even when this rotted down, the site would be remembered as Chibbet Hill or Chibbet Moor and the like. Sometimes friends and family of the condemned were known to come by night to steal the body to give it a decent burial, or souvenir hunters or pranksters would throw rocks to knock loose parts, or contrive other ways to steal their ghoulish mementos. The weather, of course, assisted in all this, as happened in Derby in 1791, when the gibbeted body of Matthew Cockline was blown down by night, as reported in the local paper. That morning, Numbers, who had often stood in melancholy gaze, repaired to the gibbet, and returned with various parts of his remains. On his way to the site, the writer mentions encountering one lucky boy carrying off the prize, Cochlin's skull. The mobility of the gibbet in the wind, though nicely theatrical, presented a fatal flaw, the stressing of the moving parts through friction. Such was the case with the body of the murderous rat catcher, Edward Corbett, who was dumped into a ditch in Beerton Common in Buckinghamshire when the eroded hardware finally gave way. Built from iron and raised in isolated places, gibbets were also naturally subject to lightning, as was reported of a gibbeted criminal from York. It must have been a supremely dramatic sight, as the whole was said to have been reduced by a sudden flash to... A thousand little splinters. Gibbet relics still have power to draw crowds, as evidenced on the Isle of Wight and the case of Michael Morey, 
a woodcutter executed in 1737 for murdering his orphaned grandson after the boy's decomposing and dismembered remains were found in a leather bag along with an iron hook and bloodied gloves. Moray's gibbet was erected near the site of the deed near the Hare and Hounds pub on an ancient barrow known as Moray's Hump near Gallows Hill at the end of Burnt House Lane, the latter because Moray was accused of burning down his home to uh, hide evidence. The Hare and Hound incorporated the gibbet post as a ceiling beam and displays the skull unearthed in 1939 and assumed to be Moray's, so later examination revealed it to belong to a female from the uh, Bronze Age. The pub is also decorated with text of a popular children's rhyme. Michael Morey is dead. For chopping off his grandson's head, he is hung on Oriton Down for rooks and ravens to peck down. And according to local lore, his skull-headed ghost may be seen in the area stalking about with an axe leaned upon his shoulder. Similar enthusiasm attaches to the case of Spence Broughton, the robber of mail coaches who is gibbeted near the site of the Noose and Gibbet Inn in Sheffield, and establish it making up for its lack of authentic relics with a replica gibbet hung outside to greet visitors, though sadly it's of the birdcage variety. The two other pubs in the area have laid claim to Broughton's legacy, though both are now gone. The Arrow was said to have played host to some 40,000 visitors who came to the first day Broughton's gibbeted form was exhibited, and to have enjoyed the patronage of the curious visiting the gibbet that hung nearby for another 36 years. Though the structure was removed by the landowner thanks to the inconvenience of trespassers, the stump of the gibbet was excavated in 1867 and conveyed to the garden of the other pub, the Red Lion, where it was visited by hundreds of curious patrons. But at some point, it's also said that two finger bones were pilfered from uh, Broughton's corpse, reduced to dust, and added to the clay of souvenir jugs. I have no idea where those ended up, but perhaps we'll see them on eBay someday. A finger bone belonging to the murderer Ralph Smith, gibbeted in Lincolnshire in 1792, likewise was said to have been used as a stopper for a tobacco container. The first finger of his right hand, to be exact. I also have a note about a tobacco bowl being carved out of the remains of the wooden post. I'm not sure if the two were part of a set or not. Naturally, gibbet irons were also recycled in creative ways. Metal that once encased Black Toby of Suffolk was said to have been fashioned into a thatching comb, and the bands enclosing the corpse of Anthony Lingard of Derby were repurposed as toasting forks. Iron from the gibbet of Tom Otter, a Lincolnshire bigamist who murdered his pregnant wife only three hours after their wedding, was mostly said to have been carried off by gypsies, though the headpiece came into the possession of the Jarvis family of Donington Hall, where it is still kept. After Otter's execution in the town of Saxelby in 1806, he was brought to Saxelby Moor to be hanged in chains. And it was quite the festive occasion. The Reverend George Hall recounted his grandfather's tales of the event. For several days after the event, the vicinity of the gibbet resembled a country fair with drinking booths, ballad singers, gypsy fiddlers, and fortune tellers. Hall, who was known as 
the gypsy parson, the, the title of the book quoted, and who knew that particular population well, relates how the gypsies remained encamped around the gibbet for years after it was erected, enjoying the fact that its haunted reputation discouraged anyone from attempting to lay claim to that land. Among the legends attached to the site was a story about Otter's ghost sending the gibbet crashing down upon the head of any unwelcome visitor, and another about the bloodied club used in the murder reappearing on the site of the deed every year upon its grim anniversary. There was also a riddle about Tom Otter's gibbet. There were nine tongues all in one head. The tenth went out to get some bread to feed the living in the dead. The extra tongues apparently belonged to the nest of birds that made its home in Otter's skull almost a year after he was gibbeted. Of course, birds, particularly scavengers, were quite attracted to and destructive to the bodies of those hanged in chains. Starlings were said to have built a nest in the chest of murderer Stephen Watson, who hung in Norfolk's Brennan Common for 26 years. Baby birds removed from the chest of the highwayman Gabriel Tompkins were sold as curiosities by a gentleman by the name of Thompson, apparently, who broke the ribs of the corpse in order to access the little chicks. By the early 1800s, gibbeting had begun to meet with uh, more objections. The spectacle of hanging a man in chains may have been embraced as a welcome diversion, but crowds could be unruly and there was always a question as to its uh, practical use as a deterrent. The hanging in chains of the murderer Anthony Lingard in Wardlow in Derbyshire hardly seemed to have that effect. His own brother William was sentenced to death a few years later for committing highway robbery near the very site of his siblings' rotting remains. And a 16-year-old girl likewise poisoned a romantic rival in or not far from Gibbet Field, named for the landmark Lingard left. Eventually, Lingard's gibbet was ordered taken down by the Duke of Devonshire, thanks to public complaints about the noise of its rattling bones and squeaking iron. A similar complaint about the unsettling noises issuing from the gibbet of John Spencer, which has stood in Nottinghamshire since 1779, led to its removal after 67 years. One more note on an indignity inflicted on Spencer's body shortly before it was removed. An October 1779 edition of the Amar Guardian relates that as a... Party of soldiers conveyed a deserter were passing by the place. The sergeant fired his carbine, loaded with a ball at the corpse, and hit it, which caused such a stench, almost unbearable for several days afterwards. Complaints about the hideous sight and smell of these things must have been numerous. Just one more example, that of the body of Samuel Hurl hanged in chains on London's Stamford Hill in 1747. It was ordered removed that very year, on account of the heat, the stench of his body being a nuisance to the inhabitants of the neighborhood. Though the practice had already been fading, the last man gibbeted in England was the bookbinder and murderer James Cook of Leicester in 1832. The event, recounted in the Newgate calendar, feels almost like a last hurrah. Thousands of persons were attracted to the spot to view his novel but most barbarous exhibition 
and considerable annoyance was felt by the persons resident in the neighborhood of the dreadful scene. By 1834, the sense of hanging in chains had been removed from the books. Before we leave the topic, I wanted to mention a few incidents involving the gibbet outside the UK, but which uh, come from British colonies. In the United States, the practice seems to have been mostly exclusive to pirates and smugglers who would be left as uh, cautionary examples along the coasts. This was the practice in Boston Harbor on Bird Island, which is now gone, and uh, Nix's Island, sometimes called Nix's Mate. The body of pirate Captain William Fly was hanged in chains there in 1726 after an awkward execution during which Fly was said to have scolded the hangman for poorly tying his noose, grabbed it from his hands, and irritably tied it himself. His body, along with those two other pirates, are buried on the tiny island. There is also a well-known case from Canada from 1763, the very year France ceded the territory to Britain. It's uh, well-known in part because it's a unique example of a woman receiving the sentence. Marie-Joseph Corivou was hanged in chains for five weeks in Quebec City after being executed for murdering her husband. The case was hardly cut and dried, beginning with the discovery of her husband, Louis Dodier, sprawled in the barn with a number of lethal wounds to his head. First assumed to be inflicted by the hooves of kicking horses, thanks to a very public business dispute between the victim and his father-in-law, Joseph Corivou, as well as his marital situation, which was known to be troubled. A trial led to the hanging of Marie-Joseph's father, who, shortly before his death, confided to his priests that he had, in fact, been no more than an accomplice to the deed. In a second trial, Marie-Joseph uh, confessed to striking her husband with a hatchet while he slept because of his cruel and brutal ways. After she was hanged and displayed for those five weeks, her body, still enclosed in its gibbet irons, was buried. The location was not made public as a certain measure of hysteria had already evolved around the case, including speculation about the death of Corivu's earlier husband, whom she had also supposedly killed, though there is not much support for this. But the real explosion of interest came in 1851, when the intact gibbet, no longer containing her remains, was dug up during work on the Church of St. Joseph in the city of Levy across the St. Lawrence River from Quebec City. It's at this point that Marie-Joseph came to be known as La Corivou and her gibbet as her cage. The gibbet was acquired by P.T. Barnum, who exhibited it in his New York Museum and on tours for a few years, before he sold it off to the Essex Institute of Salem, where it remained until being repatriated to Quebec in 2015. Probably at least partly in response to Barnum's hype, a huge body of folklore grew up around La Corivou. Uh, she became, in the popular imagination, a sort of witch or spirit, represented as a skeleton, sometimes flying after victims in her cage, or she was fantastically beautiful. And the body count of her murders was up significantly, seven in some stories. A few novels came out of this, a ballet was written in 1966, and today there is even a thrash metal band from Quebec City bearing her name. Well, we're mostly done with our gibbet 
topic and our show, but there is one more interesting tidbit from Germany. It could relate to bodies hanging in chains, as well as those dangling from nooses. It's from the 1886 book, Legends of Pomerania and Rügen, and it's about raven stones, something a bit like the Hand of Glory. When a raven has hatched a hundred winters with its mate, it lays its first raven stone, and then, every ten winters, a new one. The raven stone grows out of the thieves' eyes, which the ravens have plucked at the gallows, and the ravens must do this for many hundreds of thieves before they can lay such a miracle stone. It is the size of a nut, all round and smooth and fiery red like a carbuncle. This wonder stone has two properties. It shines in the night like the sun and makes a wearer invisible. As I was walking all alone, I heard to a corby's mac and main. The tain unto the tether sail. Where shall we gang and dine the day? Where shall we gang and dine the day? A closing bit of music about ravens plucking out dead men's eyes. It's the traditional Scottish song, first set down in 1611. The Twa Corbys, uh, Scottish for the two ravens, or crows. In this case, the corpse is not that of a hanged criminal, but a slain knight in the field. The song consists of a rather dark dialogue between the birds, noting that the knight's hunting companions, his hound and his hawk, have already abandoned him, as has his lover, so there should be none to disturb the meal we'll make of him. And then it gets into the grim details. Because the song makes use of uh, Scottish terms, Mrs. Carswell will read for us a version of those lines uh, loosely rendered in standard English. His lady now another meets, so we may make our dinner sweet. On his white neck bone you will sit, his pretty blue eyes I will with one lock of his golden hair, we'll thatch our nest when it grows bare. Over white bones with flesh no more, the wind will blow forevermore. everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or even better to leave a review wherever you listen. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you're contributing toward the more than 100 hours of work I end up putting into each show. Pledge commitments begin at $1, can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher now receive an extra something. 
And this month we have that special. It's a video of my presentation on foreign language folk horror films, which might make nice seasonal viewing. Of other months, it's the uh, Marvelous and Rare episodes we uh, gave you a sample of in September. But we've also added a bone and sickle candle featuring the skeletal Saint Notborger, as well as uh, two different mystery kits, each one with unique offerings. And we still offer my Krampus book and the show Soundscapes you hear in the background. I want to thank our new patrons, Alex Penseri, Jay Tumblin, Corianne Wilson, Alex McKinley, Brandy Hutchison, Allison Murphy, Malachio, Mads Bovbier, Marcus Benier, or Benier, uh, Justin Picard, Jeff D., Ruth O'Leary, Pieter Huni, and Bodica Artemisia. I hope I got those right. There's a Danish and Icelandic one in there, I believe. And thank you to Stephanie Simon and Old Shrugsy for upping their pledges, and to Stefan Walden and Wakey197 for their kind reviews. If you haven't yet, you might want to visit our website, boneandsickle.com. There you'll find links to our Patreon, Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with show notes with links to materials and illustrations of our program topics. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>